Hello, and welcome to episode 40 of Desi Books, news and views about Desi literature from the world over. I'm your host, Jenny Butt. Thank you for tuning in. Today, in the Desi Craft Chat segment, we have Samia Roy, who has a debut nonfiction out this month titled Castaway Mountain, Love and Loss Among the Waste Pickers of Mumbai. In this conversation, we talked about how she avoided some of the expected cliches when writing about Mumbai slums, how she did her research, how her usual journalism work in this book are different, her literary influences, and more. Somya Roy is a journalist and social entrepreneur based in Mumbai. In 2010, she co-founded the Vandana Foundation, a non-profit that provides micro-loans to entrepreneurs in Maharashtra. Soon, she began lending to the waste pickers of Deonar, discovering their secret world and intrepid lives, and began chronicling them. She's written for Forbes India, Mind Newspaper, the Wall Street Journal.com, um, Outlook Magazine, among others. Castaway Mountain, Love and Loss Among the Waste Pickers of Mumbai, is a modern parable exploring the consequences of urban overconsumption and environmental pollution. Towering at the outskirts of Mumbai, the Deonar garbage mountains are covered in a faint smog from trash fires. Over time, as wealth brought Bollywood knockoffs, fast food and plastics to Mumbaikars, a small, forgotten community of migrants and rag pickers came to live at the mountain's edge, making a living by reusing, recycling and reselling. Among them is Farzana Ali Sheikh, a tall, adventurous girl who soon becomes one of the best pickers in her community. And like so many in her community, Farzana becomes increasingly sick from the trash mountains and is caught up in the thrill of discovery because among the broken glass and crushed cans or even the occasional dead baby, there's a lingering chance that she will find a treasure to lift her family's fortunes. As Farzana enters adulthood, her way of life becomes more precarious. In a narrative instilled with superstition and magical realism, Castaway Mountain reveals that when you own nothing, you know where true value lies in family, community, and love. On a personal note, I grew up in 70s and 80s Mumbai, when it was called Bombay, less than 15 miles from this particular landfill. But I never knew the long history stretching to pre-colonial, I beg your pardon, pre-colonial times that Somya has researched and written about here. Nor did I, as a middle-class child, understand the terrible damage caused by such landfills to those who depend on it for their livelihoods. There have been many books, fiction and non-fiction, about Mumbai's slums. 
What makes this one stand out for me is that it's been written by someone who has not only lived and worked with the people described here, but has also invested time and effort trying to disentangle some of the government policies and legal challenges they have and are still dealing with. And now, here's Samia. Hello and welcome to They See Craft Chat, Somya. Um, we've just been talking about, or I've just been introducing your book, your new book, Castaway Mountain, Love and Loss Among the Waste Pickers of Mumbai. And I'm excited to have this conversation with you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So my, my first question, usually from a craft perspective, um, is I usually ask people about the genesis uh, of the book. And, and you've actually given us a little bit of that in the introduction and the opening pages. But what I mean by this is, what was that moment of commitment for you when you said, I'm going to write a book, I'm going to commit multiple years of my life to writing a whole book about this topic, or this subject? What was that? It was it happened accidentally. Um, I wouldn't say that I, you know, there was a moment when I um, decided this is it. I would say that, uh, I mean, as you know, I was a journalist from almost a decade in Mumbai City. Um, then I left, started a nonprofit and completely stopped writing. Um, it was, you know, like learning how to run a nonprofit and give micro loans, etc. It's a different scale. It completely absorbed me and I thought I would never write again. Uh, and then, and you know, um, we, we began to get these waste pickers. I would go, I would visit them, um, but more from a lending perspective. And then in 2016, January, when the fires erupted uh, on the garbage mountains, then uh, I thought, well, why don't I write a magazine piece? Because waste pickers were getting detained for being responsible for the fires, which they may or may not have been. Um, and I just thought that, you know, they may have been responsible or they may not have been responsible, but it was also that we had a connection with this place. That we had, over the years, I had seen that we made this place. This was made of our detritus. and. And so there was some responsibility that we as the city had or in different cities had in building these places and making this world and making these lives. Um, and so I thought, well, why don't I write a magazine piece that these are real people, this is a real place made by us. And so when, but when I began the research, then it just went on and on and on. It would not stop. Uh, it took years. And at some point it turned into a whole book. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned the research part, and I can see you did a lot of research. And I, you know, like you, you went back to like, pre, well, I mean, colonial times history, correct, with with how this landfill came about? I did, actually, um, if you see most official documents, they'll say, even in court, they say the, the municipality itself says that this place was built in 1927. Mm -hmm. And so when I, right when I began research, I happened to be in Oxford, England, and I began uh, visiting a library because I just had some time off and, you know, it's something that I thought I would enjoy. Uh, so mm -hmm. I started looking at their colonial records, you know, they have the India office records there and in the British Library. So I began looking 1927, nothing, 26, 25, you you know, nothing, nothing, nothing. Finally, I go back to 1897. Like I'm looking through records 30 years back and, I, and suddenly they're talking about 
all the things that the waste pickers had told me that oh there was a train that came here and I thought they were just if this was their imagination like this could not be but it was all there in those records they were saying that there was a train that came there and there was this was a marsh that was filled up with the city's trash and I was like wow so, yeah, it, it was shocking to me, quite frankly, because, uh, you know, as I mentioned to you before we got started, I spent a good portion of my childhood not too far from this place because I lived in Woodland, which has another landfill, but maybe, right, maybe right. not as, as controversial as this one. But Woodland oh, um, is in, in the process of being closed, actually. Oh, is it now? OK, OK. Uh -huh, I did. Uh -huh. oh, yeah, well. And, and this particular one, though, as you mentioned rightly, the fires in 2016, I do remember that because I was actually in India during that time. And I remember reading about it in the news. But of course, you know, I'm, I'm not a journalist. And so it didn't register for me. And of course, you, you were involved directly with the waste because so it didn't register for me the way it would have registered clearly for you and, and prompted you to want to find out more. Now, you know, you talk about you know, the, the people, the waste pickers who were coming to you when you were, when you had founded um, this, this foundation, giving microloans, and you talk about that in the book as well. Um, it was co-founded with your father, I believe, right? That's right. Right. And, and that, you're right, it's, it's just a totally different, obviously, skill set from writing. But as you were meeting uh, some of these uh, folks who were coming to to talk to you and I loved some of the conversations that you've actually um, reproduced in the book when and how did the main character the, the character that kind of you know where I mean there's a lot of stories in in this uh, book um, but you've you've kind of you know focused on it's, it's non-fiction, so we can't say protagonist necessarily, but in a way she is. Farzana is sort of the protagonist because you give us a lot about her. So when did you decide that you were going to circle the story around this particular character and, and yeah. why? Yeah, I mean, I should tell you, um, as I mentioned, I began uh, researching this book in early 2016. And uh, I mean, I had been going to their houses for, for a few years, but um, soon after I began thinking of this book, a lot ha began happening with Farzana. I had known her father much better than I had known her because she was only a child when I first met her. And I must tell you, maybe, maybe subconsciously I knew that it was to be about Farzana, but I avoided it uh, because there was so much trauma for her. Uh, she didn't want to talk about it. I didn't want to bring it up. Uh, it, was an, it, was, it was a lot of uncomfortable conversation. So um, even, you know, some months later when a friend was reading a, the draft, um, she said, Somia, like, are you nuts? Why have you got this filled up with all these other stories? Like, Farzana is it. Like, she is glowing in your drafts. Why are you not writing more about her? And I should tell you, um, for months together, even after that, I avoided having those conversations and she avoided having them with me. She would say sometimes, you ask me the same things, I don't want to talk about it. Um, there were times I was halfway to her house and she would say, can you just go back? I don't think I can do this today. Once I remember I bought her ice cream and I was on my way to her house and halfway she called and said, I can't do this. And I went home with melted ice cream, you know, not having had that conversation. But then slowly she realized that uh, I was not going anywhere. And 
that we had to have those conversations. And sometimes, you know, accidentally, when I was least expecting it, we would go out sometimes just for lunch or to a shrine. And she would just say, you remember you were asking me what I wore that day? It was blue and it was green and it was a black headscarf. And I would be like, right, right. You know, like, I think it took us some, both of us some getting used to, to have that conversation for me to absorb it, for me to be able to channel it through my hands, if I may say so. Yeah, yeah, I can, I can see that. I can see that building a relationship of, you know, a certain level of trust for her to feel comfortable opening up to you and for you to feel comfortable asking the questions you needed to ask. I, I can see how it, that would have been not a very easy task. Uh, but you've done it so beautifully and and does she just uh, before we continue on does she has she i mean i don't know has she read the book in any form does she know it's out there now yes she does she does mm -hmm. um she i mean i since i check in bubble check everything with her and her family many times she knows pretty much what is what is going to be appearing um right i mean i've been showing her photographs of the covers um the day it came out i spent publication day with her showing giving her the book explaining what's in it finally so she knows she also made a small video that we might use for promotion saying i'm farzana the story is about me it's all true it actually did happen <laughs> so she did oh i i would love to see that video yeah if, if you have a link i can include that in 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 the um when, when we publish the podcast so that would be great sure, sure, sure. yeah so so you know you you've shared a bit as we've been talking here you've shared a bit about the book's journey um and, and of course there's a lot more to it i loved especially you know your five pages of acknowledgments because oh. you know it does take a village to to you know especially with books that are that are uh, research based and field work based which is what this is for in in your case right because you did a lot of field work you were out there in the mountains yourself several times um so it, a question i have because you know when i first read the description of the book immediately i was reminded of catherine boo's behind the beautiful forevers because that book also was about you know, similar sort of uh, scenario, you know, it was slums and it was uh, garbage pickers. And, and she kind of did this sort of thing where she also uh, centered on a couple of the children characters. And that book came out to a lot of fanfare. It won a lot of awards. And there was also some controversy. And I don't know if you followed it, but just to, to summarize for those who may not know, the controversy was that perhaps some of her research methods or how she captured some of the details was not maybe you know in terms of journalistic integrity was not the way to do it I don't know I'm not a journalist but um and, and then there was something about oh you know it's all again it's presenting the image of India that basically confirms again to the world that oh you know this is what India is you know slums and and stuff like that and and so I, I know she had to respond to a little bit of that. And then I think her publishers just ended all those conversations. But were you concerned as you were thinking, okay, I'm gonna write this book. I know it's not the same book. It's really different from uh, Catherine Booth, but were you concerned or, or aware of some of the 
you know, feedback around that book? And, and then did you have to think about how you might present your story or your book differently at all? I wasn't actually, because I, um, as I said, I kind of stumbled into this project, um, you know, without much, uh, you know, planning or prior thought, like, okay, how do I, like, what I'm trying to tell you is that I, I went where the story took me. I, what, I, I went with what the sources were telling me, what they, like, I spent, I would say, six or seven years not writing and being absorbed in this world. Um, and so the stories come very much from there, uh, from what they were telling me, from, from, from all that I was seeing, that I was hearing, that I was absorbing over these years. Um, it, it didn't come from uh, reading anyone else or anything else so much as it came from just spending se six or seven years just absorbed in this world from, from a watching their lives slowly you know when i met farzana first she was 14 years old and today she's 23 so about eight and a half years and so it came from that i maybe if i had known i may not have you know i may may not have you know done it this way but i it didn't it it came very much from from what i was seeing from within me from all of that um rather than from any other any anything else. right yeah no that that makes I mean, that, that was clear to me as I was reading as well, that this was more about you feeling like it was part of your own lived experience in some way, because you knew these people in a different capacity. I mean, you didn't just enter their lives to get their stories. You were already kind of part of their lives because of the, the foundation and, and um, being involved. So yeah, that, that makes sense to me. Now, um, one of the things I noticed about the craft in the book is you don't use a lot of direct dialogue and when you are sharing dialogue it's not in English you're using the, the Hindi phrases which I can see why and I've had this conversation with a lot of other writers where they're like well you know we're writing in English but the people we're writing about don't speak English and so it feels a little artificial to put their words in English and so I, I mean it's a conundrum that a lot of writers from South Asia face right uh, whether you're writing fiction or non-fiction because if you're writing about a character that doesn't normally speak English. The rhythms and cadences are so different. So talk a little bit maybe about your, your decision here for how you did that and why you did it that way. Sure. Uh, I would say that I the phrases that I did use, uh, I used them in Hindi because they were so... Uh, so descriptive they could not have been written any other way like uh, one that's coming to my mind immediately is uh like you know my the hair in my nostrils had just burnt away in childhood because you know of the stink of the mountains i mean i don't think that if i just had it in english it would carry the same you know uh feeling um it would carry that the real import of it you know so the ones that i have retained they are for that reason right uh you said that i I didn't use too much reported speech, that's right. I think the reason for that was, um, when I think about it now, I think the reason for that was, I didn't necessarily want, a, I mean, it, I don't think I did it consciously, but I didn't want a certain rawness that comes from direct speech uh, necessarily. There was a polish in my character that came through sometimes indirect speech that they may be expressing themselves in Hindi, but uh, first of all, to explain that Hindi in English, 
it would be it would not be easy mm-hmm. uh, i myself do speak all three languages uh, but having said that to to bring that the polish of their characters the grace of their characters in you know translating that hindi into english i thought would have been difficult um and so there was some indirect speech maybe to really bring out the their characters were almost coming out better in and the feel of the place the play, the impact the place was having on them um all of that was probably coming out more in indirect speech than it was in direct speech having said that where i did find that you know a direct speech was was just so so apt it could it was untranslatable it had to be there like some of it was even from official documents um which were which were in marathi very official marathi where they said you know there's a quote where he says um during the monsoon the mountains get filled up with moisture and they expand and during the summer um you know the mountains the moisture gets soaked up and the mountains contract and they felt like it although it was in a thick official document it felt like the mountains were living and breathing and they were like animate and so that had that quote had to be there so yeah no you know yeah yeah no i totally hear you i there are some official government documents sometimes that i've read in india where i mean the language just feels like poetic it feels weird sometimes out of place in a in a government document but there you go it's the language and how do you translate that musicality and poet poetry into english as well. i mean as a translator i know it's very hard so i i totally get what you're saying would you mind um is there a particular section like that where you felt like you know i had to leave this in the original would you mind reading maybe just a minute or so of that i'll read you the same quote that we were talking about it's at this it was such a it's at this point it's only in english in this book but mm. as the mountains warmed the mountain uh, sorry uh, let me just do it again you can as the summer warmed the mountains began to shrink mumbai's sultry humid heat sucked out any moisture left within deflating them madan yavalkar a municipal engineer who had managed the mountains for years and knew them better than most had described the mountains seasonal inhalation and exhalation in the municipality's fire inquiry report in official marathi at the height of the monsoon's fury when the rain waters seep into the mountains they expand and when the burning summer sun draws out the moisture they contract because luck too was deflating with the mountains right yeah so so let let me ask you i mean there's so much in this book it's like this whole story really because you know you've also got the legal case and what happened with the fire and after the fire and you know you mentioned earlier how you started out as a journalist obviously you are a journalist for a while you had given up writing uh, journalism while you were getting this foundation going what as you look at your work as a journalist writing you know long long form uh, narrative uh, for magazines versus a book length work like this and and coming to this after that gap of uh, time what what were maybe some of the things that helped you write the book in terms of your journalistic background and what was what was maybe a challenge because it was not the same you know writing the book maybe wasn't the same as what you'd already done before so both in terms of what what how your journalism career or experience helped you and how despite it you found the book maybe challenging in some way yeah i mean 
I, I had to relearn a lot of different things. I think it, it's a very different skill set. What I would say is that both the experiences together, being a journalist, running a nonprofit, this weird circuitous journey and route that I've had, um, together helped me to write the story that I thought was what, you know, saying something about what our world is today, what, um, like, somebody was telling me the other day after reading the book that it says, it examines what being human is. Um, it says something about our world that we created this, um, this world, it says something about ourselves, our lives. Um, I, like I've said somewhere that what makes us and what we feel defines us and by throwing away we feel this doesn't define us and yet does it right so it was this this small microcosm was allowing us to examine and question ourselves and i think my training in journalism my gave me a love for research which was definitely very important in putting the little pieces together. Uh, I became this crazy RTI activist collecting thousands of pages of documents, attending hundreds of hours of court hearings. My experience in nonprofit gave me an understanding of microfinance, why people pay, repay, get out of poverty, don't get out of poverty. Um, but then all of it combined together in this strange way to ask and examine these much larger questions, which is probably why I was drawn to the story in the first place. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I hear you. And, and you talked just there about how a reader gave you feedback about, you know, how they thought this book was about being human. And I was thinking about that, about the takeaway, you know, uh, and I, of course, there's so much here that everybody is going to have a somewhat different, every reader is going to have a somewhat different takeaway at the end of the book after reading. And I know that I'm still, because I just finished the book yesterday, so I'm still processing a lot of what does this mean in terms of who, how we, how we view people from certain levels of society and how we treat them perhaps without realizing it. But if you as the writer, what would you say, what would you hope readers should take away from the book? I mean, more than anything else, I would want readers to be moved as I think any, a good book takes you to a world, uh, a different world, transports you, you spend time in that world being observed, being moved. And when you come out, you realize you're just a little bit transformed and at first you're not sure why, but you are. I remember as a reader having that, that impact. I've been a reader my whole life and I'm, I, you know, I've always, I think, good books have, have had that impact on me. So I would hope that they have that impact on read. This book has that impact on readers as well. Um, secondly, I think it was a lot about unspoken trauma, like expressing unspoken trauma that, that comes from different things. It comes from pollution. It comes from uh, inequality. It comes from so many different things, but it is about expressing unspoken trauma. Hmm. Yeah, it is. I mean, there's a lot of things that you surface, not just for Zana, but I mean, that you, first of all, you've got a large cast of characters and you, you sort of give us their stories uh, in bits and pieces here and there. And you're, you're surfacing, I, I think, parts of their personal lives that we don't often think about necessarily or, or get to see, um, or we get to see the Bollywood versions right on screen. Um, or unfortunately, sometimes we'll have a, a writer from the diaspora 
go over and do some volunteer work and decide, oh, I'm going to write a novel set in the slums, and then you know you get that version. But um, yeah, no, I I hear you. But you were right there in the thick of things, and you know you went to all these court cases that were going on all the way up to 2019, and to talk. You know, I want to talk a little bit about the book's journey in terms of we talked about how, you know, the genesis of the book where you decided after 2016, okay, you know, the fire happened, you were going to write a magazine piece, you started the research and then it turned into this, you kept finding stuff and you thought this is going to end up being a book length. And so you started, you, you began the work of, of putting a book together. In the acknowledgements, you talk about this host of people who've been part of the journey, directly or indirectly, whether they were people you, or writers that you met at residencies or writers who read initial drafts and gave you feedback. So talk a little bit about how, you know, once, I mean, did you already have, before you finished the book, did you already have the proposal out? Did you have somebody, a publisher committed to saying, yes, we're, we're interested in the book? Or did you write the whole book and then start looking for a home for it? What was the book's journey as it were? Sure, sure. Um, <laughs> uh, I would say that at first I was running my nonprofit full time. So, you know, doing residencies was a way of committing to the writing. And often on researching a little bit, um, like I was at Oxford visiting libraries, collecting stuff, interviewing people a little more in a more consorted manner than I had before, all of that. And then in 17, I happened to get a bunch of residencies and that then gave me the time. As you know, Bombay is one of the most hypokinetic cities in the world. And so you it just fills you. With, with you know running my nonprofit, I was meeting so many people, absorbing so many things, and then you go to a residency, and there is this complete quiet. Um, there is like just the whiteness of snow, the quietness, um, and you you know that you can't hear anyone and you can't see anything except this expanse of white or maybe you know this lake shimmering below, but you know that there are other writers who are polishing their craft, who are working away, who are writers who are much more accomplished than you, and yet they're working, they're chiseling, they're polishing every day when you want to put it down and just you know. Uh, crib about the cold or the heat or something there's somebody in the room next to you who's working and chiseling and perfecting their craft and their art so so the quietness helped me tremendously it quietened my mind and it just brought this world to me in a distilled way slowed it down and brought it in front of me in slow motion so I could capture it and I could write it and it also gave me the company of writers knowing that they were there uh, I mean, I tend to be a little bit shy about reading at residencies. I tend not to read at residencies because it's this, it's this vacuous, not fully formed thing that I can't pin down and really write yet. It's read yet. Um, but, but just knowing that they're there and just being able to just ask them a question that makes no sense at that point and have them talk about it is just the greatest gift. Mm. Yeah, no, that sounds like it, definitely. Now, you've mentioned you've always been a big reader, and I think most of us who come to writing, we come because we were or we are big readers. In terms of this book, would you say, who, who would you say or which book or writer might have influenced your style? Obviously, the book itself is unique in its own way, but in terms of literary lineage, if you like, were there any, looking back now, do you see any particular writers that might have inspired or influenced your style here? Yeah. Um, you know, there were 
see i was going out every day and meeting people and coming back like you know like like for example when some people like readers read it they say what like did this happen so i was also sometimes coming back thinking what like how do i make sense of what i'm seeing whether it's in the court whether it's with the waste pickers lives i was also coming back and trying to process it and in trying to process it sometimes i would talk to friends who are maybe writers and they would suggest a book or i myself would look back to my own reading history and reread books from my uh, from my bookshelf uh, and so when i when westpickers have for many years told me that oh you know we see a shaitan we see a khabis and also and so was possessed by a shaitan i would just avoid it like listen i have nothing you know you come for a loan i shouldn't be thinking about you know uh, but uh, but but when when this became came came to me again and again i began thinking like why are they saying this and what does this really mean um and i remember then i picking up this really slim volume of um, gabriel garcia marquez called love and other demons um and it as you know it's a very well known novel uh, but marquez as you know was a reporter and he often says that his stories are based on his reporting years and this one actually starts with one of the first assignments that he was given as a news reporter uh, and while reading it you realize it's very much like you know um, this woman this teenaged girl who's kind of they believe that she's she's i mean through her, they believe that she's possessed and through her body they have shown the clash between um, you know the Ro roman catholicism that comes from the spanish colonial um, you know uh, church uh, trying to cleanse these so called folkloric traditions that are playing out in her body and i felt like when i saw what was happening with the waste pickers i thought that this was unspoken trauma that was coming out um, in a way that they or it may have been it may have been just pollution it may have been fire it may have been plastic pollution but it may also have been the only way in which they could articulate the, the trauma of living in a place like this like you know farzana's older brother jahangir once he was on the garbage mountain he was a 10 year old and he was known to be extremely intrepid um and he told me many years later that he was uh, at midnight picking on the garbage mountains uh and i and he saw a chudel which is you know a white uh, a woman wearing white and like a spirit and stuff and i'm thinking what like you are known to be like this unafraid guy like what are you telling me and then i realized that if you were a 10 year old on a 300 acre garbage dump which is dark unlit what else would you see this is what you would see right so mm. you know this was that unspoken trauma and i felt that certainly reading that stuff helped me to articulate these multiple realities that it was very much possible that it was pollution that it was the fire it was smoke but it was possible that they were articulating their trauma in this manner and we had to give them the space to say that without taking a side one way or the other as the writer so very quickly yes i think that that played that helped me to process what i was seeing uh marquez secondly with all the characters you know at different points i thought that i need to have fewer characters um and then i read nagim mehfooz who i had read many times in the past and i saw in slim volumes he was accommodating all these characters so skillfully so that was that helped um i would uh, very quickly i'll tell you also the court scenes uh, i spent hundreds of hours in court and there were times when i was walking the corridor and i'm thinking i don't know if you've seen the marathi movie court um but i was thinking yes i have yeah yeah so i'm thinking like 
and i loved the movie the only thought that came to my mind was why did you make a fiction movie like what i'm seeing is crazier than what i've seen in that movie um so that um and then of course i read i i read steinbeck so 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 that um that helped also i recently i read i happened to read grapes of wrath the non fiction version of grapes of wrath which is called harvest gypsies and the diary of how he wrote grapes of wrath it's a daily diary called working days and i would recommend it to any writer writing novels because when you see steinbeck going through um self doubt or pushing himself to just get through that working day it is so inspiring Mm, yeah, I haven't read that one, but I've read Steinbeck's. He kept a similar diary for East of Eden, and I, I believe it's called Life of a Novel or something like that. And I, I did remember reading that. Um, but it's interesting. Yeah, I, I, I hear you on how each of these books influenced um, totally get you in terms of how they each individually and specifically influenced. So I love that you gave us such specifics. Um, now, tell me. Um, you know at the end of the book you've got a postscript and one of the last uh, bits there is about how uh, as recent as february 2021 you know the indian government had announced a um, multi billion dollar oh no multi billion dollar plan really to reduce uh, you know to shrink the garbage uh, mountains and and um, so on and and then there's a personal aspect as well where the case against the person who did a lot of harm uh, to Farzana is still out on bail and that was february 2021 can you give us maybe a little bit of an update do you know where we are now with that government plan and also with this person yeah the case has not come up for hearing even now it was i think it was supposed to come up in june um in it was supposed to come up in may there was a, i mean there's basically been not a single hearing of that case um for uh 5 years so uh so that's the update on her personal case um on the uh, garbage mountains they have given a contract out to make um a, a smaller waste to power plant than they had planned in the in the past uh it's supposed to come by 2023 and i hope it does um on the uh, the, the the central government's plan for uh, mitigation of air pollution as well as garbage mountains and it was just announced in this budget in february uh, I, i guess it was the the finance bill was passed in april and so i'm i'm sure that that those plans are now taking off and taking concrete shape and i'm sure they will they will change the face of our cities very soon um but i think the larger question that i deal with in the postscript is also you know what what it that a place like this a world like this makes us think that what gives meaning to our life you know the incident that i've ended with of the mother and the child you know the son who um had while chasing trash been gone gone missing on the garbage mountains and it it the it made and it made me question that you know i keep seeing things so many things 16 million metric tons of things on the garbage dump do they give meaning to our life we're accumulating them and do they make our relationships deeper um really it it just made me just it became a way to examine what gives meaning to our life yeah that that's definitely an important i i had a lot of other questions of my own as i said i'm still processing i'll probably add them when i air this episode because um, again i i think i it made me see the world that i grew up in a little differently because i had never i was a child and i wasn't paying attention 
as much, but it was always there in the periphery, these garbage mountains. So um, let me ask you a couple last questions um, and then we'll let you go. But um, the next is, you know, what, what is the next, like, okay, you've written this book, you're probably right in the thick of promotion and all of that right now, but what is next for you as a writer? <clears throat> Do you have another book in the works? Do you plan to go back to journalism, continue running the foundation? What's, what's coming next? Um, I must say that like this was, as you know, in some ways a multi-year project and um, it's left me, you know, empty and <laughs> bereft, if I may say so. So I don't have another, you know, as you said, is there another big book? I mean, sometimes I feel I may never write a book again. You know. um, I'm writing a few um, journalistic pieces left, you know, that, that are bringing together my research in different ways. Um, and that, that is, I'm enjoying writing some of those pieces because maybe it's a way to continue writing rather than talking about writing, um, which, which keeps writers sane, keeps them on the road, keeps, I feel writing keeps me putting one foot ahead of the other and moving in the right direction. So I am writing a few journalistic pieces related to them. Okay, yeah, no, that makes sense. Um, I, I, I did kind of the same, even though sometimes, you know, even with fiction, you kind of feel like you're not ready to let go. And so you end up writing nonfiction pieces about the fiction <laughs> that you wrote, <laughs> you know. Uh, and, and my last question, Somia, is I ask this of everybody. What is your favorite Desi book and why? And it doesn't, I, it's, it's a tough question. It could be your most recent uh, read, um, by a writer of South Asian origin that, you know, that stayed with you. So it doesn't even have to be in English. It could be read in any other language as well. Oh, wow, that's a tough one. <laughs> oh, I mean, just coincidentally, I am just right now in the middle of Inheritance of Loss. And oh my God, it is so beautiful. She has just got all these multiple different worlds so vividly evoked like from one paragraph to the other she's moving in these different worlds and I've actually visited Kalimpong and Siliguri and everything before I read the book and I must tell you Kalimpong like I had it's one of those places that was like so many Indian cities right that was once very great but today maybe caught in the throes of today's world um and and reading her book made it she just made it while while capturing that that sense of its greatest years having passed she still made it so evocative like magical you feel like is this for real but i visited there so i know that it's for real right like i don't know if you remember there's a scene like that that whole uh, colonial a, a remnant a small colonial town and this guy even makes a uh, a, a, car, a toy car made of a mashed potato with tomato wheels. And those of us who grew up, you know, with uh, these remnants of colonial like clubs and gymkhanas, we, we've seen some watered down version of that. And so it felt like, oh my God, is this for real? But it's not real, but I, it's kind of real. And then she's suddenly in New York and she's in, um, you know, all these different places and it's so evocative. Yeah, you know, it's interesting you mentioned that. I wrote a review about that years ago when I first read the book and I loved it. I reread it last year and I wrote about it again for the millions as part of my, you know, year in reading. Uh, I, I just, I'm, I'm, I, I wish you would write another book because 
it's been such a long time. And I know you've mentioned Kiran Desai as, as uh, one of the writers that you met at one of the residencies that you did. And, you know, we keep hearing that there might be another book coming and I really hope it is on the way because I, uh, I agree with you. I think the, the way that she has written about that place, but not just that, the politics and how it affected the daily lives of the people who lived there. Um, I, I think it's a singular book too, I really do. So uh, that's a great choice. Thank you for that. And I'm glad we're ending on that note. Uh, thank you again, Somia. This book is, um, it, it was very thought provoking for me and I, I'm glad I found out about the book and I'm glad that it's coming out in the US and um, that more people will get to read it. And I wish you all the best with the book's journey. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me, Jenny. It was a pleasure speaking to you. Thank you. You've been listening to episode 40 of Desi Books. News and views about Desi literature from the world over. I'm your host, Jenny Butt. Today's Desi Craft Chat segment was with Samia Roy, who has a debut non-fiction out this month titled Castaway Mountain, Love and Loss Among the Waste Pickers of Mumbai. Episode 41 will be up shortly. Follow on Twitter at Desi Books, Instagram at Desi.Books, Facebook at Desi Books FB. Tag the accounts if you have requests or suggestions. Email at Desi Books at DesiBooks.co. And please go to the website if you'd like to sign up for the free weekly newsletter. That's DesiBooks.co. Stay healthy, keep reading, and write well. Thank you.